0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's mayor provides an update on the city's plan for encampments and affordable housing. Will Hamilton keep the LRT local? Dr. Isaac Bogosh says we need a national inquiry into Canada's COVID response. Remembering Sinead O'Connor, a massive cabinet shuffle from the prime minister and a Hamilton war veterans handbook is found in the Netherlands The JMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900
0: CHML. One of the hot topics in town, there are many. One being the housing crisis affecting not only Hamilton, but really many communities in this country. And um, earlier this month, we had the premier in town talking about uh, housing in Hamilton. Hamilton has to do their fair share just like Toronto has to do their fair share and everyone else is doing their fair share. So they're going to, we're going to sit down and, and work with them, but we need homes built. Simple as that. It's easy to say, I don't want it in my backyard. Go everywhere else. That's not the case. We do know that some city councilors aren't thrilled with the fact that the province is moving ahead with building homes on the green belts. Here to talk about that and a whole lot of other hot button topics is Hamilton's mayor, Andrea Horvath, who joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Madam Mayor, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Some councilors have said they will sit in front of bulldozers to prevent the development of local greenbelt land. What do you make of that?
2: Well, there's just no doubt that the uh, community fought very hard to protect our green belt and keep our uh, urban boundary tight uh, and not expand it. And unfortunately, and and, and against the wishes of the council, as well as the majority of the Hamiltonians, uh, the provincial government decided to go ahead uh, and ignore our wishes and and open up those lands for development. Our challenge now is uh, how do we make sure that as little damage is done as possible. And that's kind of where I'm focused. And so I get it that people are going to want to you know, take that kind of action. Uh, at the end of the day, the province has the authority to override our wishes. It, it's not an authority that I appreciate that they use, believe me. I don't think any of us do. Uh, but we have to protect the interest not only of Hamilton now, uh, but into the future. And, uh, and that's where I'm going to stay focused.
0: So it sounds like you're not going to join them in their bulldozer sit-in
2: uh no, I won't be doing that uh but I don't uh, think that that we should just you know just walk away and and not do anything and so that's why I'm I'm hoping that we can have serious conversations with the government in terms of uh, uh protecting the city's interests and and that's uh I I always fight for the city I'm always going to fight for the city uh and the point is to fight for the city in a way that that protects our interests and that's, uh, that's my job, and that's what I'm prepared to do.
0: Last question on the Greenbelt, because we have other big things to talk about, too. Is, you know, the Premier has said the homes built on Greenbelt lands will be, in his words, affordable and attainable. Do you think that will be the case?
2: Well, uh, we don't see any plans at this point to, that to fulfill that, um, uh, you know, that suggestion. In fact, we don't even know at this point what the government's definition of attainable is. I mean, I literally had a conversation with the General Manager of Planning and Development about this yesterday, and we, we do not have a definition of attainable. And, of course, depending on which community you live in, uh, attainable it, it will look different. I mean, attainable housing in Hamilton is going to be different than attainable housing in Guelph, let's say, or, or Windsor. And so, you know, there's, there's really, um, there's really some, some work that needs to be done to kind of tease out exactly what that means. At this point, we don't have that information.
0: Earlier this week, we learned that you have sent a letter to the federal immigration and refugee minister asking for over nine million dollars in funding to help with our shelter crisis. It's overcapacity in Hamilton. Have you heard anything?
2: Uh, we have not heard anything back yet. Uh, but uh, we, of course, again, uh, I have to do what's important for Hamilton, which is to make sure we get our fair share of the announcement to the announced uh, over two hundred million dollars that the feds announced about a week and a half ago now, and so. This is why I've uh, asked our staff to put together the figures uh, and provided the government with an expectation. Uh, we have always stepped up and done our part as Hamiltonians, but as you know, uh, our shelter system is overloaded. Uh, We're in a crisis uh, since COVID. That's gotten worse, and um, and we need we need to make sure that when the federal government's um, uh, you know making plans or, or doing their work in terms of planning for acceptance of refugees they need to understand that those refugees come to cities and cities need to have the support uh to uh to the financial support to provide for those refugees and so that's what we're asking for uh our fair share and um i'm hoping that we hear something soon and right now it's a, it's a very unworkable situation basically the the um refugees arrive. Uh, we try to scramble to find space for them, which, which is what we do, and then, uh, then we ask the government, you know, in the after, you know, afterwards, after all of that work is done, for reimbursement. Well, that's just not sustainable. Reimbursement is not sustainable. We need the money up front uh, so that we can uh, we can accommodate the federal government's policies on uh, on accommodating refugees.
0: Andrea uh, Horvath is the mayor of Hamilton and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Let's move to the encampment issue, a hot button issue in this community. We know that the protocol is going to be before city council in the next few weeks. What are you expecting to see? Are you leaning one way or another?
2: Uh, well, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, what the recommendations are. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's a really, really tough issue. Uh, it's something that we're grappling with, but cities across North America are grappling with the same issue. And as I mentioned already, uh, things have gotten worse, uh, since the, um, the pandemic. And, and we know that we have, uh, conditions that, um, that really have, have led us to where we are now over time. Uh, we have a serious issue with, uh, poverty and affordability, mental health and addictions escalated, of course, during, uh, the pandemic. Uh, we know that, the, as I said, with the cost of living being so high, we also know that the social assistance rates are extremely low. Uh, we need more housing that's affordable and we need to address the access to uh, to um, housing uh, writ large. I mean, we, we, there are barriers for some people uh, in terms of being able to uh, uh, have housing and so supportive housing is also extremely uh, important. So, there are there are no silver bullets, but there are a number of things that we need to do. Why? Uh, because we need to make sure people are cared for who are residents of our city. But we also need to make sure uh, we can take our kids to the park and that our public spaces are safe and accessible and enjoyable for everyone. So it's a, it's a tough nut to crack for sure. But we do have solutions. We've watched and I've watched and, and spoken to other community leaders uh, that um, that are putting solutions in place. I was hoping we could get to some of those solutions a couple months ago, uh, but um, council wasn't ready. And so let's uh, let's hope that uh, this time around, uh, we'll get to those the, the implementation of solutions.
0: We have 30 seconds, a lot of people chiming in on this program, a lot of listeners saying no to encampments. What's the likelihood that council says no to sanctioned encampment sites?
2: Well, I really don't know, Rick. I guess that's, a conversation that we're going to have, uh, and uh, you know, we we do have a crisis uh, in front of us. And I hear from people all the time as well, uh, whether it's people saying we have uh, we, we we see lots of people who are um, in parks or on streets or in in, um, in uh, alcoves or you know it, it's people are unhoused and they're uh, they're sheltering wherever they uh, wherever they can manage to shelter. That's that's just not good enough, and so we we need to find a way to make sure that we are addressing the homelessness crisis, while at the same time, as I said, making sure our community is uh, safe and our community assets are available uh, for for people to use our, our parks and our our community spaces. And so it's uh, as I said, it's it's something that's going to take some um, you know some concentrated effort uh, and some uh, and some will uh, because leaving things as they are now is completely unacceptable.
0: I agree with you on on that. There's got to be a better solution than having people in tents in parks. We'll have to leave it there. Madam Mayor, thanks for your time this morning.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Take
0: care. That is Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath here on Good Morning Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Keep Transit Public Coalition. It's uh, comprised of Uh, Labor and community organizations here in town has a renewed call, a renewed demand to keep Hamilton's future LRT line operated and maintained locally by the HSR. Here to talk about it is Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. Carl, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I am well. So why the renewed call to have this LRT line here in Hamilton operated by the HSR. Is there there a new development here?
3: Well so what ha- what's happened is this is kind of the final step in the agreements that the city of Hamilton has to sign with Metrolinx for the project to to move move forward. Um in the previous iteration back in 2017 as y- your listeners might remember, we launched a keep transit public campaign with calls to have the operation and maintenance performed by the Hamilton Street Railway in the city of Hamilton. We garnered a petition with nearly 7,000 signatures, a motion by council then to request Metrolinx look at providing Hamilton with the operation and maintenance so this is kind of the final step in 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 the uh, overall project delivery to decide who's going to be responsible for the operation and maintenance of the line and that's what we've seen in other cities like Ottawa which I'm sure is weighing heavy in the minds of a lot of your listeners <laughs> the design build finance maintain model that Metrolinks prefers and that is the preferred method in Canada right now for transit delivery has been failing miserably um we have seen ongoing privatization examples both in as I mentioned Ottawa and Toronto, that that are fiascos. And we really think Hamilton has a chance to do things
0: differently. So, by operating and maintaining it locally through the HSR, for example, you think we can avoid these catastrophes?
3: Well, the the HSR uh, has 150 years of, of transit delivery that um, in the city of Hamilton, uh, ATU Canada um, uh, through their local 107 has 125 years of experience, including previous experience in rail. If we go back far enough in managing rail systems in the city of Hamilton, and they deliver transit and they are accountable to our local elected leaders. The problem we're seeing in Ottawa and to a certain extent in the Edmonton crosstown in Toronto is that there's literally no one to answer for these. Uh, operation and maintenance contracts are handed out to to third-party privatized companies, and then those companies are consortiums that piece off the the construction to one branch, the maintenance to another, operation to another, cleaners to another. So you have this giant circle of no accountability where all of the subcontractors point to each other and say, well, it's not our fault, it's their fault that things aren't working. And ultimately there's no accountability back to Ottawa's elected council or Toronto's elected council who are ultimately paying the bill. Your listeners have to remember, we are paying for operation and maintenance. in the memorandum of understanding, whoever operates and maintains this line, we are footing the bill. So, wouldn't it be better to avoid a situation like in Ottawa, where they're grinding through wheelbarrows by the hundreds uh, at a five million dollar a month maintenance fee? That's fixed with a transit line that's been down thirteen point five percent of the time. Nearly fourteen percent of the hours of operation this year for the Ottawa's LRT has been out of service, but the public's still paying the bill for that.
0: Yeah, derailments, power outages. It has been a debacle in the nation's capital. We're speaking with Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. They're among the Keep Transit uh, Public Coalition that is calling on Hamilton's future LRT line to be operated by the HSR and maintained by the HSR. When do we figure out what Metrolinx is going to do with this? When do they make their decision?
3: So, what we've done is we've launched a a petition at keeptransitpublic.com, and we're asking people to sign our petition to call on our elected leaders. Sometime in September or November of this year, Hamilton City Council and the LRT subcommittee meeting will be presented with a variety of options on whether or not to fully privatize, to just privatize the maintenance, or to privatize the operation and maintenance of the line with with a consortium. So, our council and our mayor gets a chance to ask Metrolinx directly if we can put the rail back in the Hamilton Street Railway and operate and maintain these systems ourselves. So we're calling on residents to reach out to their elected leaders or just to pop to our website for information, as well as to sign our petition so that we can, again, demand that operation and maintenance is run by the Hamilton Street Railway with local accountability.
0: With the cost pressures that are already in our city and in our province and in our country, we all know that City Council is probably going to look at the most affordable option is maintaining and operating the LRT through the HSR the cheapest way to do this.
3: It's certainly the best way to do it. And as we've seen from other private partnerships, they end up costing a lot more in the long run. So what ends up happening with these consortiums and partnerships is they play a little bit of a shell game in in hiding the the costs. So if a a consortium gets the design, build, uh, finance, maintain contract to to construct the tracks, the heavy rails, the buildings, all of the associated uh, equipment, what they'll do is they'll either shortchange on the construction or they'll shortchange on the maintenance. And ultimately, we're footing the bill. And as we're seeing in Ottawa right now, the maintenance and the legal costs are stacking up. Same with the Eglinton Crosstown, which has a, been a 12 years in construction, billions in cost overruns with no sight, end in sight and no accountability. So we're really calling on us to make the council to make the right decision, which will end up saving money in the long run. We saw what happened with the privatized water debacle in this city when we tried to outsource our municipal water service to a service that was apparently going to be cheaper, and it ended up costing us hundreds of millions of dollars in the long run to bring that back in-house and to build up those facilities so truth. we know public services can be delivered more efficiently and better by public agencies and the hsr has a lot of experience in running transit in interoperability of and the knows the needs of our community and we as a coalition really believe that it's the best choice and in the long run it will end up saving taxpayers money because we're not paying for that extra profit incentive for a third-party company to operate the system we would be paying those costs directly ourselves yeah
0: this is a case of you get what you pay for carl we we'll have to leave it there thanks for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. And get more information online at keeptransitpublic.com. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: COVID-19, remember that? Well, there's now a call for a national inquiry into Canada's response to the pandemic. And it comes from the BMJ Medical Journal, the British Medical Journal. Here to talk about it is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the U of T. Dr. Bogosh, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Morning, Rick. I'll I'll cut to the chase. Do you think we need a national inquiry?
4: I think we need some introspection and uh, certainly an objective, uh, independent view as to what we did well, what we didn't do well, what we can improve upon. I think there's multiple different forms as to how this is done. um, And we need to find the correct modality to do this. But yeah, of course, we definitely need to look into what we did, why we did it, how decisions were made. Because sadly, we're going to have another pandemic. We know that's going to happen. That's a certainty. There's very few certainties in life, but there will be another pandemic. We just aren't sure what the organism or the bug will be. And we're not sure when it will be, but we know pandemics have plagued humankind since the dawn of time, and we'll have another one. We have to be ready for it. So learning these lessons is extremely important.
0: Was the biggest failure what happened in the long-term care facilities? Because that's where we had an overwhelming number of deaths.
4: I'm with you on this one. I think that was definitely at the top. Uh, There's probably a few others that are up there as well, but that's definitely one of them. That was tragic. And we didn't fail our long-term care facilities once. We failed them multiple times, but you know there were just a horrific number of deaths in the first wave and then again in the second wave. And we had known for you know, over a decade before that long-term care facilities were vulnerable to infectious diseases, outbreaks. In fact, uh, we were dealing with them every single year with influenza outbreaks. We knew there were staffing issues. We knew there were infection prevention and control issues we knew they were very vulnerable and you know it took sadly covid-19 to sweep through them during the first wave and during the second wave ultimately leading to thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths
0: from a healthcare perspective and i mean you're you're in the game you're in this profession uh, we heard time and time again about staffing shortages and burnout and people leaving and 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 you live through it how did physicians and nurses and everyone in the industry get through it? And, and what lessons did you learn for the next time?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, let I'll never speak on behalf of the healthcare profession. I'm sure everyone has their own individual experiences. I don't uh, judge anyone for leaving the profession. People have their reasons to do what they do. Um, for those of us who, I, I, I can certainly say that, yeah, of course, morale, morale was low, uh, at various points in the pandemic, and certainly our healthcare issues in Canada are far from over. We know there's ongoing uh, strain on the healthcare system from coast to coast. This is not just a you know Hamilton problem, and not just an Ontario problem. It's a, really a Canada-wide issue, and you know it, it was very challenging at various points in the pandemic. You know, you I remember pre-vaccine, we'd be caring for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And we didn't really have much to offer them other than supportive care, keeping hydration up, um, balancing electrolytes, providing oxygen therapy. And that, that just wasn't enough. And and we had so many people die. You know, when when we started to see the therapeutics roll out, when we started to see the vaccines roll out, you know, these were just game changers and it was, it was so much better. But, of course, it's not over. And, you know, COVID's still here. It's still a problem. It's not nearly as big of a problem as it was before. But, you know, we can't ignore that it's still going to, prey on the more vulnerable Canadians and, and those that's 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 sadly who we're still seeing in hospital. People on the older end of the spectrum, people with underlying medical conditions. So this is gonna be here for a while something we need to continue to take seriously.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist, one of the faces and voices from the healthcare industry during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're talking about a call for a national inquiry into how Canada responded to COVID-19. And one of the items up for discussion, or at least the the people behind this are thinking, you know, we should be doing, or the provinces definitely and, and, and the federal government should have been doing a better job of having a consistent message. Because you know, one province was doing one thing, another was doing something a little bit different. Having a consistent message has got to be a must for the next time. Do you agree with that?
4: Oh, absolutely. And, and I take it a step further. And it wasn't just the messaging. It was coordination. So we have, you know, a federal uh, public health authority. We have provincial public health authorities. And we have municipal public health authorities. And, you know, there were many times during the pandemic where different provinces were doing different things, even within a province, even within Ontario, we'd have different public health units saying slightly different messages at times. And sometimes policies were vastly different between various public health units, even within the province. So we need better coordination between the federal level, the provincial level and the municipal level, not just from a public health response, but also from a a political response as well. And um, I think that that would go a long way. I think that added to a lot of a lot of the confusion uh, among the general population. You know, that's 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 a biggie. And you mentioned earlier, long-term care sector was a biggie. Um, we we things we did well, though. I think it's important is you know lots of Canadians were vaccinated, and that truly saved a lot of lives. And when you look at the global landscape, we didn't make the vaccines. You know, we 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 got our vaccines. From, uh, from overseas. Initially, we got our vaccines from, uh, from Europe. And uh, we had early access to vaccinations more before other countries that didn't make vaccines. Uh, and that, I think that was, a, that, was, that was a very strong point. And in fact, when you look at the vaccine rollout, Canadians rolled up their sleeves and got vaccinated. And, uh, and that, that did a lot of good and, and certainly alleviated a lot of morbidity and mortality.
0: Well, national inquiry or not, we have certainly learned a lesson um, whether or not uh, improvements will be made the next time around. That remains to be seen. Dr. Bogosh, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning.
4: My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: You too. That is Dr. Isaac Bogosh from the University of Toronto and a staff physician, infectious disease specialist with, uh, well, the U of T as well.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Well, unfortunately, we have to discuss the passing of Sinead O'Connor. She was just 56. The legendary Irish singer absolutely left uh, an amazing mark, not only in the music industry, but... With many of her social causes, a trailblazer, one who did not um, take the path of least resistance, that is for sure. Here to talk about her life and her legacy is Alan Cross, the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Alan, good morning. How are you?
5: Hi, Rick. This is a, this is a sad one. It's, um, but I, and I have to say it's not terribly shocking. Um, she led a very troubled life from the very beginning and has gone through a lot of turmoil. So when the news came down yesterday, it was uh, it was sad, but i I, I got to admit, not terribly shocking.
0: Yeah, I, I thought two things. A remarkable career, but really a rough life. Like she, It wasn't easy for her at all.
5: No, she grew up in an abused household. She uh, was sent to something called a Megalyn Asylum when she was 15 for being a, a shoplifter. Um, that's uh, a place in ireland where uh, unruly and women and unwed mothers were sent uh, run by nuns not necessarily the kind of place that she enjoyed
0: yeah.
5: um she then got out into the music industry she was discovered by a, a the drummer in an irish band called Intu anua and was eventually signed to a record deal in in london and when she went to london the record label wanted to soften her image, you know, wear some short skirts, grow your hair out, that kind of thing. She was so upset at that, that she immediately went out front found a barber and had her head shaved. And that's how she stayed for the rest <laughs> of her life. Yeah. She um, had this, this incredible voice. I remember when the first album, uh, The Lion and the Cobra came out in 19, well, it was released in late 87. Uh, I remember listening to that record thinking, how could this little tiny woman, and she was small, how could this little tiny woman have such a big expressive voice that could go from something so sweet to a snarl in a second. And, you know, she those first two albums, Lion and the Cobra, and I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, just just incredible records. Not an ounce of fat on either one of them.
0: Nothing compares to you, which was the intro song, one of the most famous songs, I think, that uh, uh, was ever created and, and is attributed to an artist. And I know other people have done it, but, you know, when you, when you hear the song, you instantly think of her. How, did, how was she connected with Prince, who, who wrote that song? That's
5: a, that's a good question. I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I think he offered it to her because uh, around that time, Prince was writing so many songs and he was giving many of them to other people. You know, he gave, um, uh, songs to the bangles and, and, some of his, uh, mentor groups. Um, and, and she really made it her own. Um, and you know, it, it's a, it's a beautiful song. You've seen the video because when it came out, it was absolutely everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. And it's a simple video, it was shot in the outskirts of Paris, but most of it is the camera focusing on a close-up of her face. And uh, at one point, this one single tear comes down her cheek, just at exactly the right time. It's it's still a very powerful, powerful video. Unfortunately, though, she never had uh, any hits after that, because she didn't want to play the music industry game, for a variety of reasons, and I understand that. Uh, She refused to go to the Grammy Award. There was that episode where she tore up a picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live. She got into spats with Madonna and Joe Pesci and Frank Sinatra and a variety of other people. At, At one point, the backlash against her was so strong that a pile of her record states and CDs were steamrolled in front of her record company office, in, in New York, they actually put a pile up there and a steamroller ran over them. And that was it. She, uh, she released eight other albums. There's apparently another album coming. But none of those eight other albums achieved the kind of success, at least commercial success, as, as those first two.
0: Given, uh, you know, especially after the Saturday Night Live, you know, pic- picture tearing incident. Um, given that, do you think there was some untapped potential or, or she could have been much bigger than she ever was? I think she could
5: have um but she did not want to play that that record company game. Yeah. And she was the other she got this reputation as being difficult. Well, that's one way of putting it like <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it this was a strong woman with with real serious opinions about herself and her art and no one was going to get her to deviate from that. And, and back then, you know, Old Boys Club and the record industry didn't want to deal with her. And, you know, those eight records that did come out, they're, they're very good. I, I have them all. Um, it's just interesting. See, again, what made her Sinead O'Connor was the fact that she was a gleeful troublemaker. Mm-hmm. She did yeah. not want to, like you said, follow. the. She had no interest in following the path of police resistance. In fact, she, she was an activist for, for so many things, abuse in the Catholic Church, abuse against women. Um, and and she had her, her own issues that she was constantly, you know, dealing with. Uh, a lot of things conspired to make her Sinead O'Connor, but a lot of those things conspired to hold her back from being, you know, a, a genuine madonna level superstar.
0: Yeah. Even so, she definitely uh, made her mark. That is for sure. Alan left we'll to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. Alan Cross is the host of the ongoing history of new music. You can hear the show Sundays at 8 p.m. on Brother Station Y 108 and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: This is a positive step in a moment of consequential impact in the world and in the country. It's funny, though. The one minister
5: who was responsible for these failures didn't get moved. And that minister is Justin Trudeau.
0: Here are the voices of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Federal Conservative Leader Pierre Poiliev following a uh, massive overhaul to the Prime Minister's cabinet, his inner circle, the biggest change in a long, long time. And it comes uh, about two years into... Uh, Mr. Trudeau's latest mandate, um, it, what, what, are these cha- what do these changes mean? What impact are they going to have? Let's ask Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I hope you're well, too. I am good. There are. I'm not sure the prime minister's good. I mean, uh, he was certainly smiling yesterday, but he has made 30 changes. Only seven ministers have kept their portfolios. What does that tell us?
6: Well, I mean, I think it's an indication that, uh, you know, looking forward to a possible election in the next one or two years, uh, uh, the Prime Minister realizes that he needs to, you know, give Canadians some kind of sense that things are changing uh, and that maybe by putting people in new positions, uh, you know, it will spur uh, at least uh, the impression that it's a government that is is active and, and actually has new ideas in terms of, of how to move things forward I, mean, I think really since the pandemic has hit the the government has been hard pressed to really uh, indicate to Canadians what agenda it has, how it's, it's really making differences in in areas that you know Canadians worry about uh, like housing uh, cost of living uh the you know the future of work. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really been hard-pressed to to really say what it's doing in those areas, and I guess one strategy is to shake up your cabinet uh, in, in, you know, showing that you're doing something and, and perhaps hoping that uh, with a change of personnel, there's maybe a, a bit more forward movement for the government.
0: Gone are the likes of David Lametti, Marco Mendocino, probably the two most high-profile MPs who are no longer in the Prime Minister's inner circle. Does this Change the channel and how Canadian voters will view this government going forward?
6: Yeah probably not. I mean there was a there was a time that maybe ended with the the and, and Martin governments where you know you could look at a variety of different cabinet ministers and say they represented something and uh, uh, you know, if they changed positions, it might mean that certain kinds of policies would come forward rather than others. But certainly over the past twenty years, uh, under Harper and now under Trudeau, uh, you know, it's all in the hands of the Prime Minister. And so I think, you know, Canadians, you know, traditionally would have had a hard time naming, you know, more than one or two cabinet ministers, maybe even just naming one cabinet minister. Uh, you know, I think at this point in time, Pierre Polievre is probably right in 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 putting the focus on on Trudeau as, you know, the one minister who didn't change, uh, in that most Canadians, you know, put uh, cast the blame, but also give the credit Uh, to the Prime Minister and and don't really look much at at who the other players are, even if those players and their competence and their ability to move things forward ultimately, you know, does have an impact on the success of a government or the ability of the Prime Minister to be persuasive with Canadians.
0: We're discussing the Prime Minister's cabinet overhaul with Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Burlington MP Karina Gould, who was the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, is now the government house leader. Is that a step up? Is that a promotion, a demotion or a lateral move? Well, I, I think in the world of politicians, it's probably seen as a
6: promotion. It's a very responsible position, uh, you know, and enables you to, uh, you know, have a certain amount of power over what uh, your ministers and and ultimately, you know, what the caucus does. So, I mean, it's a it's a pretty uh, important role in that way. Although I think, uh, you know, for Canadians on the outside looking in, they'd say, yes, but what are you actually getting a chance to change? At least as a minister of families, you know, you had your hand on a number of policies that, that uh, affect us in the day to day. So I think for a politician, that's a step up. You know, we might ask if it actually, you know, comes with a uh, real tangible influence on how well or how poorly Canadians live.
0: One more minute for you. This uh, cabinet shuffle comes on the same day of an abacus data poll that shows the Liberals are now trailing the Conservatives by 10 percentage points. They've never been double digits uh, in in a trailing position for a long, long time. Uh, Does this cabinet shuffle come at the right time? Uh, Well, it's hard to say. I think Canadians probably
6: would like to see a government that showed more competence, uh, even in getting the small things right, like appointments and so forth. Um, you know, it's not clear that in changing all these files and having to bring new cabinet ministers up to speed, that you're actually going to, you know, increase that sense of kind of daily competence, or maybe even the incompetence of people in new positions who are learning. Um, so yeah, it's not clear that it, it makes a, a very significant difference, especially as many of the key players, uh, like the finance minister and the foreign affairs minister, the environment minister, and uh, you know, stay in, in the in the same position. So. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure it really is going to do a lot to uh, change the channel. I think a lot more of that will have to do with whether Trudeau is able to convince Canadians he has ideas to deal with uh, their most pressing issues.
0: That might be a tough sell considering what uh, what we've gone through the last little while. Peter, always appreciate your time. Thanks for the uh, the time this morning. Welcome. Peter Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster University. You're listening to the
1: Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Pretty good story as we welcome you back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. This is a story about a Hamilton soldier who misplaced his military-issued handbook. At least that's the thought. During the Second World War, he came back to Canada and, well, he didn't bring his handbook back. All these years later, a handbook has been found, and it obviously has a Hamilton connection. So I'll pick it up from there with Mark McNeil, contributing columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, who has written about this in thespec.com and in your local Spectator. Mark, thanks for your time this morning. How are you? Great, uh, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. This is a really interesting story. Now, before we get into where this handbook was found, let's first find out who it belonged to.
7: Was a fellow from uh, Hamilton named uh, Thadis or Ted? He was actually known more as Ted Rosicki. and uh, he was an Argyle soldier and um, uh, serving overseas, and was part of the uh, post D-Day liberation of uh, of Europe. You know, the, the Argyles uh, went all the way across Europe, eventually ending up in Berlin.
0: So, this book has been found. How and where was it found?
7: In a uh, town called Niverdal in uh, Holland. And it was uh, <clears throat> it was in an attic. So what happened, there was a, a fellow who was a uh, physician during the war who uh, lived at the house and uh, uh, collected uh, various documents and uh, war memorabilia. All ended up in the attic. And then uh, the attic was being uh, sort of cleaned out by uh, uh, two generations later it was still in the family they were selling the house it came upon a bunch of stuff that they gave to the local war museum but the fellow who was doing the the the, the work uh, the, the most of the cleanup uh, um really found the uh, booklet interesting he he kept it so um he wasn't sure what to do with it he was kind of intrigued with uh, with the fellow's name and wondered you know who he was and it wasn't clear whether the person survived the war. So there was a local fellow in um, in town named Andre Gorder, who's, who's sort of known as the uh, you know, local historian. He's uh, 52 years old, very interested in uh, war memorabilia. And so so he approached uh, Andre, and so Andre went, went uh, online to try to find something out and um, didn't, didn't find very much at first. But then he, he, he kind of went on to Facebook and found a couple of... Uh, a couple of uh, sort of uh, group pages of, of about local history. posted there, and then lo and behold, um, one of the do- uh, daughters of uh, Ted Rosecki, the, the soldier, uh, notices this posting, and uh, and and um, anyway, it uh, re- reaches out to Gorder, and uh, and 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 now the uh, the book is actually en route. It's it's uh, to the to the family.
0: So, from what I understand, this this book was found in the attic by a guy who's kind of cleaning it out as they're selling the home, as you mentioned. Yeah, um, uh, gets the help of this, you know, a lo- local war historian yeah. who finds the family in Hamilton through a Facebook post, and yeah. now the book is en route to Hamilton. And from your article, it appears that the book is going to be heading back to the Netherlands.
7: Well, really, it, it, it was, it was the last thing that uh, came up in the uh, conversation with the. Uh, the family, you know, they they they, uh, they sort of uh, met, met amongst themselves and figured, you know, what's the best way to uh, to deal with this? So they'll they'll keep it till uh, the uh, the 80th anniversary of the liberation of, of Holland, which is in uh, 2035, and they're planning to travel to Holland to this town, and and they uh, would give the book back, or essentially to the uh, to this uh, museum. So they, they'll uh, they'll keep it. Uh, the family plans to keep it for uh, you know year and a half.
0: Wow, that's uh, that'll be a pretty special reunion. What else do we know about this soldier?
7: Well, he um, he was part of a reinforcement for the Argyle. Um It looks like he was uh, he started in forty three, and uh, survived the war. Of course, he um, came home. And he, he kind of worked in uh, in uh, menswear and sales. And uh, so he, he ran a store on uh, Concession Street for a while. And he also worked for Cambridge Clothes, which would be kind of a, a division of Copley uh, for for, uh, for a long time. Um, he, he didn't live uh, well, he died at the age of 64 of, uh, of, of lung cancer. And uh, so he he um you know the book this book which, which is which is important to soldiers like all soldiers had one of these uh all Canadian soldiers had these sort of eighty page books which kind of uh, uh were guides to being a soldier they would you know tell you how to uh handle being um uh, be uh, take a prisoner um you, you know how how to how to salute uh, how to how to recognize um, uh, ranks of uh, of other uh, allied uh, soldiers, you know, like uh, Americans, for instance. And the whole first section deals with that. And then the second section, you know, kind of optimistically would deal, you know, after the war's over, what you're supposed to do, and entitlements with, uh, for pension and that. And so it gets personalized because, it, you know, the first page becomes biographical, which, which you probably saw in the graphic. And then there's a bunch of open pages at the end um, for notes, and, and he sort of uh, took all kinds of notes uh, in there about his family and different correspondence with his family and, and, and also uh, some addresses of some fellow soldiers. And, and so it was personalized uh, for him. Um, and and they're, just, they're just small. It's like three to five inches, uh, three inches by five inches. And, and they're told, you know, to keep this booklet. And, and somehow he lost it. And, uh, and, and it's thought that maybe he was getting some kind of medical care by the uh, physician in, uh, Niverdal, uh, that, that, that the, um, lost the book or somehow it got caught up in the, uh, possessions of the uh, physician.
0: We got about uh, a minute left. Um, the reaction from family, how have they taken the news that, you know, their father or grandfather or relative's book was found all these years later?
7: Yeah, they're really over the moon about it. They, uh, are extremely excited. uh, uh, uh very 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 uh you know excited they uh it's a very close family and and they uh you know very proud of their um father or grandfather's um uh, uh involvement in the war so that they're you know very very excited about this and uh so it's 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 a, it's, it's nice that, that this has all come together and, and you know you think uh you know, you and I have been around for a while. You know, 20, 25 years ago, this never would have happened. You know, this is because of the Internet. It's because of social media. This this is about how, you know, we've become this global village.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, really quick, do you know when the book is going to be obtained by the family?
7: Well, it was, ma- it was mailed uh, uh, last Wednesday or Thursday. So they're thinking uh, probably by the end of this week or early next week.
0: Pretty cool. Mark, thanks for your time this morning. We'll certainly have to follow up uh, down the road once this family obtains the book and see how they feel about it.
7: All right, great. Well, thanks, thanks Rick. It was
0: great chatting with you. You got it. Mark McNeil, contributing columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. What a great story with a with an awesome Hamilton connection. This guy in the Second World War misplaces his handbook and, and, and should never have done so. You know, soldiers at the time were told to keep this thing, you know, write your notes in it learn how to, you know, become a a soldier and deal with things like being captured by the enemy. And, uh, well, I guess he put it down as he was being treated for whatever illness or injury. And uh, all these years later, nearly 80 years later, it's going to be returned to the family.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you Rate and review.